This interview was done in the studios of Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Community Radio relies on its listeners for funding. If you enjoyed this program and would like to hear more programs like it, please donate by going to 2XXFM.org.au, click Support 2XX, and then donate, subscribe, volunteer, or sponsor us. Thanks. Hello, Bob. Are you there? Oh, good morning, Scotty. Ah, good morning, good morning. Excellent to uh, hear your voice. So we're talking today with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Yes. Good to be here, well, thanks. Yeah, so the Gene Ethics Network, how did the uh, Gene Ethics Network come about? Oh, well, we got started 30 years ago under the auspices of the Australian Conservation Foundation and um, we've just kicked on from from then um, Genetic engineering is still a hot topic. This is the uh, biotech century, some people say, uh, where uh, a lot of innovation is happening. So there's also a need for a great many critiques of uh, what genetic manipulation does and uh, to living organisms and uh, what it's going to be used for, particularly with the new crop of uh, genetic engineering techniques coming along. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We'll touch on that in a bit. But, um, yeah, uh, I guess genetic modification, what, what is it? What are, they, what are they actually trying to do here? Well, uh, the old 20th century cut-and-paste techniques uh, wanted to transfer genetic information, that's DNA, uh, between organisms in order to, for, for instance, give a crop plant uh, resistance to Roundup so that uh, you could spray the whole field with the herbicide which would normally kill the crop but that but but would allow the uh, plant to con- to survive and continue to grow while everything else was killed and uh, the other main innovation in uh, crops was the introduction of a gene for uh, an insect toxin so that when the caterpillar of uh, certain uh, species of moths came along and ate the plant uh, the um, digestive system of the caterpillar would be disrupted and uh, they would die. Of -hmm. course, uh, there are a few problems with both of these strategies in that the weeds, on the one hand, would soon acquire resistance to Roundup, which they've done very extensively where this uh, system has been used. And in the case of the insects, similarly, we now see that uh, cotton, for instance, is in the third generation of... um, uh, so-called BT insect toxin genes because the insects keep adapting to the uh, to the toxin in their environment. Yeah, so we'll get onto a lot of these details a bit later. Um, so I guess just with the 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 old school sort of stuff, how how's how's one gene actually transferred from one species into another? Well, there are a couple of different systems. There was the biolistic system, in which uh, very fine particles of metal were coated with DNA and they were literally shot into the uh, into a cell culture of the target organism. Um, and then there was, of course, also um, an invasive uh, um, agrobacterium, a bacteria that creates the uh, crown galls on fruit trees, uh, which takes over the machinery of the tree and that particular bacterium is also used so that you add the uh, the new foreign DNA to the bacterium and you get the that to go into the cells of the crop plant or the animal, the insect or the microorganism that you want to modify. 
this hasn't been a great success. Of course, it could only uh, transfer one gene. So most most traits um, like eye colour and so on in human beings are multigenic traits. So they've never really been able to mo- be modified using uh, this strategy. And now in the last five years, a whole new crop of genetic manipulation techniques have been developed. I, I suppose the most famous one at the moment is called CRISPR and um, it's the uh, focus of a lot of attention by regulators and of course companies wanting to make profits out of it and scientists wanting to make reputations out of it at the moment. Mm, What does that one involve? Well uh, CRISPR's um, still cutting and pasting single genes. Uh, They claim though that they're able to so-called gene edit rather than have to introduce DNA from other organisms. So they can cut and paste pieces out or they can uh, put new pieces of DNA in. And they say it's very accurate, cheap and efficient and profitable, of course. Um, This remains to be seen since uh, CRISPR and the other techniques still have no real history of safe use or commercial use out in our environment, in our food supply. and uh, but, th- but there are projects to modify not only crop plants, but also animals, fish, uh, trees, uh, insects, and even, of course, human beings, um, because uh, they're always keen to make the perfect human being as well, which <laughs> raises a whole lot of Just uh, wonderful questions about eugenics, etc., Yes, you can, you can have a whole lot of national pride at the Olympics then, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so how, yeah, you, went, you, you talked a bit about accuracy. How accurate is the placement of a new gene inside the, the genome? I mean, genes, a genes, yeah, I guess that, and are genes reliant on being in the right order? Well, the short answer to that is yes, absolutely. Um, the off-target uh, impacts of these new genetic manipulation techniques is now being uh, widely reported in the scientific literature and uh, it appears that hundreds or indeed perhaps thousands of off-target impacts will be created when you uh, use these new techniques to modify a gene. Some of the most recent research, for instance, um, involved human uh, genetic manipulation in which... uh, researchers have have been attempting to remove viruses from pigs so that the pig organs can be uh, used for uh, transferring to human patients who, uh, of course, there's a shortage of human organs, except in in places like China where, where of course, they um, augment the supply by um, uh, executing people and harvesting their organs. So they've claimed that they can get rid of the viruses which are in pigs and have made the transfer of these organs to human beings uh, impractical until now because uh, you don't want pig pig viruses getting into the human population. So there are claims that CRISPR has now been successfully used to remove those, uh, those viruses. Likewise, with some recent embryo research in human beings, um... With a single gene fault, they've created um, human embryos uh, with uh, 
a single gene for a heart disease uh, from the from the male from the sperm, and uh, they've claimed a 72% success rate with that. Um, but of course, it would need to be reliably 100% uh, for this technique to be any use as well. Already, a similar result is achieved by gene genetic screening, of course. So this is just another scientists say more clever way that they could create uh, human embryos for IVF programs. Mm, now there's a number of other technologies and ZFN and Talon and RNA. Um, yeah, anything, anything that's standing out about those? Well, RNA uh, interference uh, does appear to be um, problematic because uh, unexpectedly the modification of, say, a plant or an animal uh, appears possibly to transfer to the organism, which is most likely to be a human being, that then eats that crop plant or that animal and that the DNA of the organism that eats the originally modified organism can also be modified. This has um, got to be checked out, of course, and uh, it would be of great concern and uh, just why you would want to do it, it's hard to say. Another um, innovation is the so-called gene drives. Now, gene drive is a tactic for tricking a gene into being driven through a whole population of organisms. So, for instance, people are interested in uh, trying to develop uh, gene drives for mosquitoes so that malarial mosquitoes could be made extinct. So the idea is that the organism that's the target would be rendered extinct by a, um, a gene being driven through the whole population uh, through reproduction of those organisms. Um, so there's a debate, particularly in the Convention on Biological Diversity, the UN Convention discussions, uh, saying, well, what are the impacts going to be if we uh, deliberately make other organisms out in our environment extinct? Yeah, um, well, I can see the eagles would be gone, the koalas would be gone, the dingoes would be gone, the wolves, the bears. There'd be an awful lot of stuff that would just be gone if we'd had that over the years. Well, there is work going on in Australia, in fact, to uh, do this exactly with um, mice. And uh, I think Correctly, you're then uh, targeting uh, those animals that are dependent on uh, on mice out in the environment for their food supply. Of course, they might transfer eagles, for instance, or raptors might uh, transfer their interests to other native animals rather than the exotic mice. But uh, oh, I was thinking they, whole would, they would be the original there. target. They've been uh, hung up on fences around the country for a long time by angry farmers. Mm. Yes. Yep. Uh, so, you know, um, plans for getting rid of rabbits, wild dogs, cats, and a whole lot of other ferals in our environment sound very nice, mm. but there's a lot of work to do and a lot of questions to be answered about whether gene drives could possibly be used in the future. And I'd, I, I think um, ecologists are already saying you can't... Ha deliberately knock out whole species without uh, there being uh, environmental consequences with uh, unknown uh, effects in the long run, at least. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> weird stuff, isn't it? Uh, now, let's go and, and have a look a bit closer. Uh, we'll just, just focus the microscope a little bit more. And um, what's a gene and, and what do they do? What's a gene? Hmm. Yeah, we are going back to basics, aren't we? We might as well. <laughs> well, a gene's a code, really. The codes of life, they were called. Um, a gene is... Um, a set of uh, four different chemicals, A, T, C, and G, which arrange themselves on that iconic image, the double helix, uh, which is in all living organisms. And uh, that codes for the production of proteins uh, in the cells of organisms, whether they're single-celled organisms uh, or organisms like ourselves, which have a very large number of... Um, of cells and uh, the instructions tell the tell the um, the machinery of the cell whether a gene is switched on or off uh, and whether the pr proteins for that particular organ or that particular um, biological function are um, are turned on or off and differentiate the different parts uh, and organs of say a human being or an animal for example. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, of course, there's still a debate um, now about uh, the role of genes, and we've got people like Rupert Sheldrake, for example, saying that there's a lot more to it than that, and the new science of epigenetics and um, various branches of the so-called omics are um, also exploring... Uh, the complexities of this and not just assuming that uh, genes are the, the be-all and the end-all of how uh, biological systems work. So there's a huge amount of research going on. Um, genetic manipulation is only one little part of it, but of course it's the part that uh, corporations are most interested in because they have in their mind that they can create new organisms as products uh, for the production of things like biofuels, um, make trees more productive, have crop plants that survive better as climate change kicks in, and a whole raft of other considerations. Um, yeah. The production of, uh, of uh, food additives and processing aids, for instance, drugs and other pharmaceuticals, um, human therapeutics... So these are very uh, powerful and generic technologies, and as a result, there's also now a very lively and hot debate going on about the regulation that that should happen worldwide, really, about um, uh, the new genetic manipulation techniques in particular, because the old cut-and-paste ones from the 20th century, I think, or while they were a, a useful research and development tool, um, are largely going to be superseded by these new gee whiz uh, techniques that are coming along. Mm, yeah, right. So, so I guess with any of these things, they're 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 working on a, a single cell or a single molecule, aren't they? Um, how does how does mucking around with with just a thing like you said in the original ones, they just shoot a a, a bit of DNA into a whole cell culture like this tons of DNA in there. How does yes. that one little bit lodging in there get into all the other cells? 
Well, of course, they always had to have a screening technique, and this was one of the reasons, I think, that they originally did the um, the Roundup tolerance, but they also generally would include an antibiotic resistance marker gene. So once you'd done that initial uh, shooting of the foreign DNA into cell culture or used the agrobacterium to um, smuggle the new DNA into the cell, uh, the scientists would not know where it would land on the genome, so the double helix would be modified not only once, but in many different ways and in many different places, potentially. And uh, normally speaking, if you were going to get a good result, you don't just want one modification. So you'd need something like the antibiotic resistance marker gene, and you would then, after you'd done the modification, apply the appropriate antibiotic to the culture. Uh, All of the cells that hadn't uh, appropriately incorporated the the marker gene uh, would die and the ones that remained, if there were any indeed, and most of the time there weren't any, uh, would then survive and you would culture those and create the new organism with the um, with hopefully uh, your target gene incorporated appropriately into the genome. But say if it was a crop plant, you'd have to culture that, um, create the original plant um, and uh, harvest the seeds and grow some more and see whether or not uh, the, say in this case, the Roundup tolerance uh, was incorporated into the crop plant, a very lengthy Uh, expensive and tortuous process which the boosters of things like CRISPR and RNAi and the gene drives are saying uh, will be much simpler, quicker, less expensive and complicated to do and um, in the end more profitable. And then of course you've got another strand of interest from people who want to be the next sort of Steve Jobs of the biological Mm -hmm. world who are um, eager to use the tools available in their kitchens and bathrooms to uh, do some of this informally as well. So we've got a whole culture now of biohacking, which uh, is starting to develop. And uh, the main focus of that in Australia at the moment, at least, is the biofoundry, so-called, which is in Sydney, run by um, an unusual character calling himself Meow Meow, Uh, So there's a bit to watch in that space as well. The regulator says they've got the work uh, firmly under observation and control, but um, our question to them is why doesn't uh, Meow Meow uh, or why isn't the biofoundry required to have an institutional biosafety committee and appropriate training as uh, everybody else in Australia is required to do if you're a university, a company, Uh, a research facility of any kind, you've got to have an institutional biosafety committee and it's about time the biohackers were required to have one as well. Well, that's right. I mean, you look at an electrician's got to do an awful lot of training and the only risk that you can uh, get out of that is to, you know, just kill one person or burn the house down. I think so. Um, Appropriate credentials and training are the absolute minimum for this sort of work. And, uh, the biohacking facilities around the world are um, attracting people with uh, 
many of them with no biological training at all, who are thinking very mechanistically, say, from an engineering point of view about uh, putting together the building blocks of life to make new organisms that are going to uh, make them a big reputation. Uh, a bit like, as I said, you know, Steve Jobs putting the first apple together. Yes, yes, I think there's a lot of that going on in the uh, in the geoengineering sector as well. Uh, Indeed, yes, there yeah. are some... Uh, some, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> wanting to fix up the world. Cannons but, about, uh, yeah. um, so, if once you do get the uh, get the gene, no, I mean, let's backtrack a little bit there. So, that's the old school method of doing it. You just sort of shoot it in there and hope it goes where you want it to, um, and then you just get rid of all the waste. How yep. about the new ones? Are they are they similar to that, or is that actually? I mean, you know. I've seen guys sitting in their van splicing bloody optic fibre cable and that looks really tedious, but I can only imagine sitting in a little Petri dish sort of splicing genes into all these things. How do they... It's still cut and paste in a way. Um, you snip a little bit out using your uh, the enzymes. The thing is, um, what what the new techniques do really is, again, hijack... A process like the agrobacterium that I mentioned that would infect um, rose bushes and fruit trees, um, CRISPR and the other techniques are things that scientists discovered in nature uh, were a characteristic, a defensive mechanism of uh, viruses that they would use to snip the uh, DNA of microorganisms that came to attack them because, of course, uh, in the world, in the real world, we've got uh, a uh, what's the word I want? A porridge, a, um, <laughs> a, a you know, <laughs> of uh, of microorganisms in our gut, for instance, competing with each other for uh, space and uh, nutrients and uh, life, and uh, they do tend to have wars among themselves as well. So, uh, and to try to take over the uh, biological machinery of other microorganisms in order to uh, to get a win in the uh, battles for survival. And um, these processes of cutting and pasting uh, each other's DNA in order to uh, neutralise the enemy, as it were, very warlike kind of imagery, uh, has now been discovered, in fact it's been known for quite a long time, uh, has been hijacked or discovered or uh, made into a proprietary product, let's say, uh, by scientists for the purpose of um, modifying higher organisms as well. And so these new genetic manipulation techniques um, are going to be produced patentable products and there are a few <laughs> major rows going on about who owns what in the patent offices of the world right now. Uh, between the people who have been doing the discoveries and others who want to use them and those who have bought rights to use them um, about exactly what these things are going to be used for, how they're going to be used, why they're going to be used and who is going to reap the uh, what they see as the very considerable profits of uh, creating new crop plants, animals, fish, trees, insects or more or less anything else you can think of. 
Mm. So what what are the actual problems that might get caused or that do get caused by uh, by genetic pollution like this? Well, I've already alluded to the to the off target impacts. Mm. Uh, while you know this is touted as being very accurate and uh, very efficient, and we know what we're doing, um, it's now quite evident from the scientific literature that there are many um, off target impacts, and these are starting to be catalogued. Of course, there'll be more or less, uh, depending on which technique you're using, uh, which organism you're working with, and so on. But um, if you're talking, as we did a few moments ago, about modifying human embryos uh, or animals for organ transplant, then you've got to be thinking uh, a couple of things. You've got to be applying the precautionary principle if we don't have enough information yet and there's no history of safe use, uh, we had better proceed very cautiously because we could create a very serious problem here. Um, we have already a history of uh, things going quite wrong. For instance, there was a CSIRO um, project in the... Um, in the late 1990s, uh, the immunosterilization of feral animals uh, and work was being done on creating viruses or bacteria to um, target the reproductive uh, systems of feral animals in Australia, like rats and mice and um, foxes, rabbits, and, you, foxes yeah. and so on, exactly. And there was a lot of work done. And at one point, um, unfortunately, they killed all their experimental animals with one of their um, with one of their organisms, <laughs> and um, wrote up the results as posing a hazard, a serious danger, which was published and talked about in the scientific community about the creation of bioweapons, because of course, biological weapons is the dark underbelly of all this, uh, the military, uh, particularly the US and Soviet and, and Russian militaries uh, have got have had for a long time very big biowarfare programs in which they are trying to develop organisms uh, which would in war be used as weapons, um, perhaps against civilian communities as well. And in this case, uh, having killed all their all their animals, the uh, the researchers understandably were taken aback and were given permission to publish because they wanted to warn others. And more recently, um, the U US uh, annual state of it's like the um, the report of the CIA and the other secret services in the USA also noted last year that uh, the new GM techniques, CRISPR and others. Uh, also pose similar biowarfare potentiality that uh, they just want, again, to raise the flag and say these things can be used for very terrible purposes as well as potential good purposes. And uh, we want you to, you policymakers, to know this and to think seriously about where we're headed with these new GM techniques. Yes, yes, it's... Uh frightening sort of scenario isn't it we'll move out of the lab a bit now that's all a bit of a uh, bit of a brain fry in there but uh, so once you get out of the lab say you've got your uh, well let's say a soybean you've got your wonderful 
GM soybean or a canola plant perhaps. Let's use canola for an example. Um, I've got my canola plant, I've, I've taken off my white coat, I've walked out the door, put the, uh, put the canola plant in the ground. What happens then? I mean, you, you get to grow your seed. Um... Yes, well, in the case of canola, that's just the Roundup tolerance. Hmm. So um, you can come in with the top dresser, the plane, and uh, spray your Roundup over the whole crop, and uh, you'll keep the weeds uh, killed, or, and uh, the, the crop plant will survive. So uh, this is supposed to be um, a weed management tool. And then, of course, uh, you can spray Roundup more often at higher doses so that uh, it's claimed you're more efficient and uh, it's more profitable. But unfortunately for the farmers, uh, there's a premium for GM-free. So something like 98% of Australian farmers remain GM-free. There's only a couple of thousand growing cotton in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales and a little bit of canola in Victoria and New South Wales, and about 30% of the crop in Western Australia where they have very, very serious weed problems. But even there, um, the price for GM-free canola last week was $40 a tonne for the European market, and they have zero tolerance for any GM. So uh, that means that uh, most of the farmers are staying out of the way and capturing the benefits of getting a premium uh, and the people who think they've got an unmanageable weed problem can spray more often and really multiply and complicate their weed management problems in the longer run. Yeah, right. So you're saying that you you can grow this, this Roundup-ready plant and, you know, it'll grow up and all the weeds might grow up around and anything that's there, and then you can cover the whole place in poison and the only thing that will survive is the Roundup Ready. Yes, yes, until they become resistant, of course. Hmm. You know, previously you would have been a physician of only being able to apply a a herbicide, um, something to kill plants, and that would most likely have been Roundup, which is the most used herbicide in the world. Um, You'd put the weed killer on before you planted the crop and then you would have to use cultivation or you would just have to put up with the weeds. Um, Or you would, if you were smarter, you might um, plant your crops so that you shaded the weeds so that they didn't germinate and become a problem. And through the years, this would... um, uh, the strategy of minimising the crop, uh, the the weed burden would, would help. Of course, many people are working on other things. The West Australians especially, there's the... Harrington Seed Destructor, which is a new machine to hooking onto the back of harvesters, which will grind up and destroy weed seed during uh, crop harvest. And the Harrington Weed Destructor appears after two or three seasons to really knock down the uh, the problem of weeds over there uh, by um, dealing with the seed before they ever get a chance to germinate. Yeah, right, so it's taking all the residues that are getting harvested off the field. You take off your good stuff, the grain, and just grind the hell out of everything else. That's right. They're using a um, a grinder. In fact, uh, the idea came out of the mining industry, ah. uh, which is used to grind up uh, minerals. So, yeah, there are things like that around. And then there are for... You'll often see in uh, 
local streets and so on, um, kids in shorts and thongs spraying. Well, that's Roundup usually um, being sprayed in local parks and playgrounds and yeah. golf courses and anywhere else that uh, a plant is that uh, somebody doesn't like and <laughs> calls a weed. This this raises issues as well. So now there are a number of things like the weed steamer. There's a um, a system called BioWeed. There are flame guns, a whole raft of different things that councils are trying to try to keep those toxic chemicals out of the uh, local built environment. And yeah. I think that's a very good thing, and that's a counterpoint to what's happening on farms. Absolutely, and there's uh, pasture cropping and all sorts of new innovative ways of growing crops too, aren't there? Yep. We have to transition out of uh, the industrial agricultural system because uh, as oil uh, and phosphates become scarcer and more expensive, they won't be available as inputs for industrial farming. And I think it's essential that we, rather than wasting our scarce research and development resources at this stage on the GM enterprise, should be thinking about uh, eco-agricultural systems agricultural systems that are based on ecology, working with nature and looking after soils is the way of the future for sustainability and particularly in this time of uh, climate change. But, uh, it's interesting, just this week we saw the um, Queensland Government Environment Minister backing GM crops as the way to deal with climate change but meanwhile it's the same government that's giving a tick to the Adani coal mine it's really <laughs> mental gymnastics gone mad. Uh, yeah, so, so I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, soil, if, if we're going to do any sort of geoengineering, a, a mass conversion to uh, organic agriculture would probably be the one. Well, uh, it would tie up a lot of carbon, certainly. Uh, getting uh, uh, compost and humus back into the soil is, is a critical um, aspect. The uh, Something like a quarter of, uh, of uh, greenhouse gases are from agriculture and I think that uh, being smarter there and changing our focus and uh, moving on from industrial agriculture which is bound to uh, crash and burn sometime soon and is mostly just producing bulk commodities basically mining the land uh, for export into world markets for um, animal feed and feedlots, biofuels, and, uh, of course, partly to feed the human population as well. This, these un industrial activities are not sustainable in the long run, and uh, the younger farming community especially is now looking much more seriously at soil management, at um, sustainability, um, environment friendliness, and I think that's got to be the way to go and of course we should be putting our scarce research and development resources in that direction and not continuing to dump big buckets of money into uh, the uh, genetic manipulation fantasy thinking that that's going to solve our um, our food problems you know we already have a food security problem in australia something over two million people each year are food insecure and have to rely on some charity in australia and uh, we can see much more of that in the future unless we make a priority of feeding our own communities 
and giving less focus and putting less effort and research and development resources into the bulk commodities for export. Yeah, so how does the Roundup, when it is sprayed all around the place, uh, how does that affect the soil? Because I guess the soil really is a living organism itself, isn't it, or it should be? Yeah, well, it does tend to create a desert, as do other synthetic chemicals. Um, yes, it does uh, promote the um, the rise of various pathogenic organisms, which require you to do more spraying. So it's a bit of a treadmill, um, and... Uh, the organic model, and indeed even post-organic, which would be um, more focused on the soil and the nurturing of those uh, fundamental biological systems uh, in the earth, uh, is the way to proceed, I think. And uh, unfortunately, there's not much research and development effort being put in those directions. Yes, yes, it's a bit of a shame, really, missing the boat a bit there. Missing um, the boat, indeed, more yeah. particularly if they think that it's going to uh, help climate change, as the Queensland Minister appears to think, um, while letting the coal mine go. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> we, need, we need some real public activity around that. We do. Now, how does Roundup affect humans? I mean, you, you mentioned that before the GM stuff, you could only apply the Roundup uh, before your crop had emerged, and that would make it quite a long time before the crop got ripe and you stuck it in your mouth. But now you can spray the, the, the plants after they've grown, and, and there's a lot lesser sort of buffer time before you stick that food in your mouth. Is there a, anything going on there? What, what could it do to us if we get a bit of Roundup in our mouth? Well, it can be used as a desiccant as well um, on some crops at the end of the season because you've got leaves and you've got branches and you've got all sorts of stuff that you don't want to get stuck in your harvester. Um, they can go across and uh, put put the herbicide over the crop right at the end of its life <laughs> and get rid of those um, troublesome uh, bits of leaf and other other biological stuff that's going to muck up the harvesting process. So yes, it is hanging around, although the research that was done by the World Health Organization in 2015 when they uh, upgraded the categorization of Roundup in particular from a possible human carcinogen to a probable human carcinogen was the focus on the people who use, use the product that um, farm workers and uh, people who spray that and other chemicals are likely to be more at risk than those who are eating the food supply. However, um, there is there are Roundup residues. Um, there are re residues of all sorts of chemicals in um, the food supply, in the conventional food supply. Um, it's just that our regulators say, oh no, but uh, certain levels of these chemicals are safe and uh, the, these levels are below the safe level. Uh, the problem with this is that the evaluation of chemicals, and there are literally uh, thousands of them out there in our environment and about to be a lot more, they're individually assessed. So firstly, the only the active ingredient in a mixture like Roundup, which has got a whole lot of different chemicals in it, only the active ingredient glyphosate is evaluated for its impact on uh, the environment and human health and animal health. You know, it's interacting with a whole lot of other things. And then, of course, if you spray that and you spray, say, insecticides as well or other um, 
herbicides or fungicides. Um, there's no evaluation of the interactional effects of those chemicals or their cumulative effect when they're out in the environment either. It's just too complicated for the regulators to do more than to look, one, look at one thing at a time and say, yep, we'll give that a tick, that's going to be safe, provided you follow the label and provided you don't spray too much or at the wrong time and that you observe the withholding period. <laughs> All many big ifs and buts. And then we're going to keep this within limits. But what this means is that you've got all these chemi different chemical residues. They're synergistic and uh, cumulative and collective impacts are not ever really evaluated. And this whole mindset of one thing at a time uh, has to change because that does threaten uh, environmental and public health. Now, you mentioned uh, resistance. What, what's resistance? Well, resistance is um, a natural evolutionary process. If you uh, spray something that's going to kill an organism, then you might get a good kill in the first year. Like if you release um, myxomatosis, for instance, to kill rabbits, uh, you might get 99% of them in the first year. But the 1% that survive are going to be resistant. They, they, they're the ones who have got... Uh, something in their genetic makeup, uh, in their biological systems that is going to allow them to survive being assaulted with this uh, particular um, microorganism which has killed everybody else. And, of course, then very soon after a <laughs> rabbits generating very quickly, regenerating very quickly, you've got uh, myxomatosis resistance. And so it is with plants, animals and microorganisms that... Um, Evolution wants things to survive, not to uh, go extinct. And yeah, that's what happens. A, a triumph of diversity, really. Exactly. Nicely yeah. put. Nicely put. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess you, you wind up with super weeds, don't you? Well, yes. Yeah, you've got to bring in another... another if you want to actually kill them, you, you've then got to bring in another array of um, toxics to... Um, kill the thing that has become resistant to whatever you're spraying. Mm, yeah. And you can end up with some pretty nasty situations. Uh, in the USA, they've got weeds that uh, just really are unmanageable because they're woody weeds, large, and they break farm machinery, and they're resistant to being sprayed with and, and managed with Roundup. So uh, that's the kind of problem that you encounter when you either overuse the chemical, as was widely done in Australia prior to... Um, the GM crops being introduced in 2008 um, or you introduce something like the GM Roundup tolerant crops, soybean, corn, canola, cotton or sugar beet, which are the five broadacre GM crops, and then you spray the hell out of them and you soon get resistance and you end up with huge headaches that in the long run cost you a lot more and... Um, You've also got the other problem that uh, shoppers don't want to buy and eat your product, <laughs> which is <laughs> pretty pretty critical, I think. Uh, Helps you know, so it's got to it. go cheaply into animal feed or biofuels instead of being fed to human beings. Ah, I see. Well, what happens to a GMO if it's not sprayed? Does it just sort of peter out? Does it get outcompeted by all of the natural things about it? Or? Well, most of these things are annuals. Um, what will happen when you start having um, Roundup tolerant trees, for instance, is a bit hard to say. We haven't quite got there yet. Um, 
but you know most of these things are, are depends on being cultivated on being grown by farmers um, of course uh, canola is pretty weedy and it's got plenty of weedy relatives so um, it can outcross and they're also as a result of this whole industrial system much more likely to become uh, resistant weeds as well and more troublesome to farmers. So um, it's a complicated system. Um, it's not solved by a technical quick fix like uh, genetically manipulating the crop plant. And we just need to take a more holistic and more ecological approach uh, to farming systems that respects the environment, works in harmony with nature and particularly with soils and uh, move on to that system which will be able to sustainably uh, feed future populations. You know, we've got so much evidence that the industrial system has already failed. One billion malnourished and starving people in the world and then we've got on the other side uh, as a result of this whole system including junk food um, at least a billion uh, obese uh, people in the world as well who's health is compromised by being just too fat and unhealthy. So the system has failed and um, we need a new paradigm and uh, it's time to move on and start thinking strategically about it. But we see that our policymakers are fixated on, um, in Australia at least, on this free trade uh, bulk commodities, no value adding in Australia. It's, it's the same with the minerals. Uh, we, we, we dig up the minerals and send them un, unprocessed and unvalue added uh, into other, people, other people's markets for them to make the, the big profits out of them and then buy the products back. Um, not a very sensible approach to things. And I think our federal government really needs to... Uh, start thinking seriously about doing things differently. But meanwhile, we've got some of the states, in the case of South Australia, Tasmania, and the ACT itself, for instance, saying uh, we don't want commercial genetically manipulated crops and other organisms in our jurisdiction. And we've now got a discussion uh, among federal policymakers and regulators about knocking off the rights of the states uh, to declare themselves GM-free for marketing purposes because what they're saying is uh, we get these fantastic premiums, the rest of our food products are regarded as clean and green, uh, we can sell them into any market, we get premiums, um, it's a great bonanza and uh, we saw just last week that the Premier of South Australia uh, on the landline program on uh, ABC TV, uh, went uh, to bat again for GM Free, saying we got the evidence. Uh, we know that all of our beverages, our wines, our grains, our um, food products, our dairy uh, are all in high demand, both locally and overseas. And this is good for our our economy and. Uh, if we bring genetically manipulated crops in here, that's a threat, not an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And so ACT, incidentally, has an open-ended moratorium as well. Yeah. And, uh, it's certainly very important to keep that in place, I think, even though there's not a lot of uh, agriculture going on in the ACT. 
Yeah, well, say I was going to grow some organic, uh, let's say canola again, we'll use canola. If I was going to grow some organic canola um, and, and my neighbour in Queanbeyan was allowed to um, was allowed to grow some GM canola, um, how would that affect my, my organic status? I mean, would it be likely to, to jump over the fence? Well, yeah, we already have the example in WA of the Marsh versus Baxter case where um, a wind carried um, millions of seed over the fence. Uh, part of the process of harvesting canola is to um, make a windrow. Um, you cut it down, it dries on the ground, and then you come in and harvest the seed. And um, uh, Baxter's um, GM canola had been windrowed, was lying on the ground, and of course a willy-willy came along and picked it up and dumped it onto Marsh's farm, which was certified organic. And um, he notified his certifier, the National Association for Sustainable Agriculture, uh, that he had this um, GM canola on his place. The organic standard has zero tolerance for GM in uh, organic food products. So 70% of Marsh's farm was um, decertified. And his direct economic losses were $85,000, which was pretty minimal, really. Um, the negotiations with his neighbour failed uh, to produce any result and uh, it did go to court and sad to say Marsh lost the case twice so even though the chief judge of the appeal court found in his favour she was outvoted and um, he's having to bear his own losses um, and his own costs of the court case uh, so your prospects, if you're in ACT and you're organic and you got contaminated, would be probably just as bleak as um, as Steve Marsh's. Um, you couldn't get compensated. And this is one of the reasons that we're arguing to state and federal governments that uh, there's a necessity, not only in the case of genetic manipulation, but also now increasingly in the case of agricultural chemicals for consideration to be given to setting up farmer protection funds so that uh, when GM comes over the fence or spray drift comes over the fence, the farmer who's affected, who's adversely affected, can be automatically compensated. And the way to fund that would be from a levy on the sale of all genetically manipulated seeds or uh, agricultural chemicals because... Um, it's just not fair that uh, the vast majority of the industry, and particularly organic, is is constantly threatened by uh, incursions from their neighbours and in supply chains as well, uh, where um, segregation is generally successfully managed but can go wrong and uh, the people who are harmed and uh, find it very difficult to uh, to get compensated. Unfortunately, when the GM uh, regulatory system was designed in 2000, the governments decided that uh, the courts would be the way to resolve any dispute over genetic uh, contamination, and uh, we now see that it doesn't work. So, yeah, yeah. So are the GM companies in general sort of uh, fond of being in court? Well... Uh, in the Marsh versus Baxter case, no, um, they're not keen to be in court, but they are 
willing to stand behind the people on their side. So Baxter was indemnified by Monsanto for his costs in the court, which made it a pretty David and Goliath battle between Steve Marsh and Michael Baxter, who were boyhood friends and neighbours for most of their lives um, and created a huge amount of acrimony in the community. But the negotiation about settling the thing beforehand didn't go well because Marsh didn't know that his neighbour was being indemnified by the company that actually owned the seed because when Monsanto sells the farmers the seed, it doesn't hand ownership to them. It only uh, hands over management control. It retains ownership. Uh, it, it retains the say-so of what's going to happen. And um, it also, in the contract, exonerates itself from any responsibility. So the farmer who buys GM seed is the one who cops any criticism or any litigation that might arise out of things going wrong. And, uh, of course, CropLife, um, which is a global network of the agrochemical companies and uh, in the case of what we call Crop Death Australia, uh, they've got 20 member companies uh, as their members and they are the main uh, stalking horse for uh, any policy about agrochemicals, genetic manipulation and other things that might affect the interests of the rich and powerful uh, agrochemical companies like Bayer, Monsanto, BASF, Dow and DuPont, uh, ChemChina and so on, which are going to be... We're going to end up very shortly with three mega companies um, as a result of various takeovers, for instance, Bayer's taking over Monsanto, three mega companies owning and controlling something initially something like 70% of the world's commercial seed, including all the genetic man, genetically manipulated varieties, and um, around about 60% of all the globe's uh, agrochemicals. And then you've got a small handful of companies controlling uh, farm machinery, uh, fertilisers, and now increasingly information as well, which has become a very marketable product uh, in the era of climate change. Yeah. And this monopoly ownership and control of the global means of producing food and fibre is not in the public interest, and yet it's proceeding as a pace uh, well, to... it's, uh, it's not really the first time that sort of arrangement's happened, has it? I mean, the one that comes to mind immediately is the, the Croplien system in, in North America in the late 1800s where the, uh, the one company owned the seed supplies and the fertiliser supplies and all the general stores, and so they could set the price for the seed and the growing of the crops, and then they also owned all the avenues for those crops to get to market. So when, when it got... Yep. Uh, harvested they could change the prices and they'd get you on both sides and that led to uh, the populist movement which is where the word populism comes from and and uh, the great dust bowl in the states as well i believe yep well that's that's that system of the 1800s uh revisited but now on steroids um this is really very significant at the moment the world's producing something like one and a half times enough that food to feed everyone well uh, throughout the world. Um, a population of something like 12 billion people could be fed right now. 
provided um, this ownership and control. Um, and then, of course, we've got uh, food supplies being used as political weapons in various parts of the world, in wars and civil unrest and so on. And, of course, the price of food in uh, the late 2000s, um, the 2008, around about, um, almost caused revolutions in a number of countries because uh, food was not accessible at at affordable prices. People were starving. And this system just needs uh, innovation from top to bottom. And yet our our regulators and our policy makers are sitting there up in Canberra um, and in the state governments as well, all focused on not feeding Australians sustainably and well into the future. And as I mentioned earlier, we've got, uh, as Food Bank reports, um, over 2 million people in food insecure. Just altogether a very bad situation for our, for our communities. Uh, this, is, this is something that needs to be dealt with urgently. It should be a top priority to feed, house, clothe, educate and heal our community. That's what we want our governments to do. It's what they're not doing effectively. And um, it's time that we got new policies and new focus. But unfortunately, when you go to talk to the politicians and the bureaucrats, all you can get is, well, you know that um, 20% of our farms are these huge uh, agribusiness farms. They're the ones that are generating the revenues from exports. And that's where we, we put our focus. That's where we put our research and development resources. And that's what we'll continue to do, even while the system's falling apart and failing. Yeah. So if, if, if I decided I really didn't want to take part in any of this, how, how would I be able to go about that? Is it well, it's, it's, it's um, community gardens, permaculture, um, urban um, farming on uh, nature strips and in your backyards, um, all of these, of course, are new movements to sustain the uh, food movement, the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. All uh, there's the, uh, of course, the school uh, programs for ga- school gardens and teaching kids how to um, prepare and eat well, uh, good uh, locally grown foods. These are all great things, but. Um, Meanwhile, we've got officialdom still going in the wrong direction and uh, we have to change that. We've got uh, governments going back to try to negotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership without the USA at the moment. The meeting's coming up in the next couple of weeks in Sydney at which um, the other 11 countries involved will be um, seeking even further to put the power uh, into the hands of corporations to... uh, take power out of the hands of our governments and communities and um, all in the interests of this trade in, in things like foodstuffs around the world uh, where governments will be able to be sued. For instance, if a company um, says that it's lost some profits by a government protecting the environment or changing the law to protect public health, uh, this is not in the public interest, and yet we've got uh, Steve Chobo and the federal government off in this direction secretly at the moment. They don't release the text of their negotiations. They don't brief the public, and they don't listen uh, to what we should be doing. 
I must say most of the major parties are the same. Yes, yes, the Labour or Party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, another monocrop. Um, the if I'm if I'm wandering up and down my, my supermarket, staring at the shelves and, and sort of gazing into the into the ingredients sort of lists of everything, um, how am I going to find out whether or not this is GMO? Well, it's going to be difficult for you, unfortunately. Um, but you can buy organic, so that's GM free. And increasingly, um, a wide range of processed products are also uh, putting a GM-free label on their products, guaranteeing that they haven't used anything that's been genetically manipulated. And then, of course, you've just got to keep in mind it's things like soybean, corn, canola, cotton, and sugar beet that are the um, the five uh, bulk crops. So, for instance, cottonseed oil, most of the Australian uh, cotton is now GM. Uh, the oil from the seed goes into frying fast food. So you're, if you're in the junk food shop and you care about GM, then ask them whether or not they fry their food with uh, GM cottonseed oil or canola seed oil for that matter too, though that's less likely. The canola will tend to go into um, generic uh mixed vegetable oils where the the exact ingredients are not specified. Um, and then, of course, a fair bit goes into things like bio, biofuel production and uh, into animal feed as well. So the, the products of animals fed on uh, genetically manipulated soybean or corn, a fair amount of which is imported uh, from the Americas for animal feed, they don't require to be labelled. So um, it's a little bit of a sleuthing, but there is, of course, the GM-free shopping list, which anybody can download. If you go on and look for the GM-free shopping list on the web, you'll find it on the GM-free Alliance website. Uh, download a copy, and uh, it's got some very good advice about how you can uh, shop GM-free. Yeah, right. That's sort of handy. They've gone and done all the work for us, have they? We have. We have. That's Beautiful. one of one of our projects that we've been working on. Right. Our alliance of groups, which are uh, working away uh, behind the scenes for the last thirty years. Yeah, beavering away. How about if I'm a farmer? I'm sitting at my little computer terminal, browsing the internet. Going, how am I going to buy GM-free seed for my crops? Oh well, that's there's only the GM cotton which is only grown in southern Queensland, northern New South Wales. And then there's the canola seed. So pretty easy to avoid, really. No fresh food, uh, fruits and vegetables in Australia, genetically manipulated. Um, most of the grains are not. And as I earlier alluded, um, something like 98% of all uh, farmers in Australia remain GM-free. The states of South Australia, Tasmania and the ACT and the Northern Territory, incidentally, are all um, uh, GM-free. So it's really a pretty constrained industry. It hasn't been the world beater that uh, uh, a lot of the industry thought, but they're still out there spruiking their their products and very eager to have other things as well. Yeah. So um, in the, for instance, in the... Um, in the tofu and uh, soy milk supply, you'll find that most things are labelled GM-free. And you can rely on 
those GM-free labels because the ACCC, the Consumer and Competition Commission, said very clearly when um, GM labelling was first an issue uh, in the early 2000s that they would be keeping an eye on it as well because a GM-free claim, as far as they're concerned, is zero tolerance. So it's, it's absolutely squeaky clean. If there were any GM product um, in a GM-free labelled product, then you'd likely end up in court with the ACCC, which would be a nasty business. Mm. So food, food processors are very, very um, loath to, uh, to infringe the, the rules in that respect. And it's very interesting, of course, that despite the fact that there are not that many GM-free labelled products out there, there are many GM-free products which are not carrying labels because of the concern that just for a little bit of contamination you might get hauled up before the court. So, for instance, the own brands of Coles, which is something now like 30% of their offering, are actually GMO-free, even though they're not labelled, because uh, Coles only can control the production of that part of its offering and um, is not prepared to label because of the the, the risk of uh, something going wrong and ruining their brand. Yeah, yeah, which certainly could happen, couldn't it? Yep. And the rules are about to change or they're being considered at the moment in relation to these new GM uh, techniques and, and their products produced using CRISPR and ZFN, RNAi and all the others that we've mentioned earlier in the show. Um, so our regulator is um, considering what the new rules and laws will be at the moment and the Council of Ministers of all the governments of Australia are doing their five-year review of the National Gene Technology Scheme uh, as we speak and if anybody was interested to make a submission... Uh, they should do so by the 15th of September. Um, Our headline items there are that the governments, particularly the federal government, appears uh, hell-bent at the instigation of crop death and other corporate interests to knock off the right of the state governments to continue to declare themselves GM-free, as the ACT, South Australia and Tasmania have done which would mean that they'd have no control in the future at all over the introduction of any genetically engineered organism, whether it was a, an insect, a tree, crop plant, animal or microorganism into their jurisdictions. So we're very clear that that right of the states uh, to declare themselves GM-free zones on marketing grounds has to be retained because even if the federal regulator decides that a genetically manipulated organism is safe for the environment and public health. That doesn't mean there aren't a whole other raft of environmental, um, of uh, marketing, should I say, social, ethical, and, and other considerations. And we think that they should continue to be considered by state governments yeah. as a backup. We want the precautionary principle in there. We want it improved. Um, and we want all of the new uh, GM techniques and their products to be um, evaluated by the regulator. At the moment, the regulator is considering which of these new 
techniques in their products, uh, will we will we deregulate from the beginning, even though they've never been out there, even though they have no history of safe use, even though the evidence is very weak on their safety? Uh, the regulator is currently considering uh, deregulating a lot of them, and, and at the behest of the industry, and that's very very unsatisfactory. Hmm, Again, yeah. the labelling is under attack as well, and. Um, Finally, I think we, we do also need to join the uh, United Nations Biosafety Protocol, which is the uh, first treaty negotiated under the Convention on Biological Diversity, yeah. which we belong to, but yeah. we're not, um, we don't belong to or implement the Biosafety Protocol, which is specifically on genetically manipulated organisms, their management internationally. And it's about time after... Uh, 12 years that Australia got on board as it should do. Yeah, well, we've pretty much run out of time. Is there anything you'd like to add and where can we find the Genetics Network? Yeah, well, you can find us online, etc. But before we go on to that, I just mention that this National Gene Technology Scheme review is on until the 15th of September, so people have still got more than two weeks to make a short comment. They can go um, on the Friends of the Earth website where there's a briefing, a gene technology review, or if, if they look up the National Gene Technology Scheme Review, um, they will find a government website as well where they'll get all the information they need. Or anybody who wants to is welcome to uh, email me at info at geneethics.org. Gene ethics is just gene and ethics put together. Sounds so good, info then. at geneethics.org or for a local call from any landline, uh, they can give me a bell on 1300 133 868. I've been uh, here 30 years waiting for their call. <laughs> <laughs> we became autonomous in 2002, so uh, we moved away from the Conservation Foundation and uh, have been autonomous since then. So we're reliant as a not-for-profit on uh, public... Uh, support and goodwill and uh, if anybody wants to reach me 1300 133 868 or the email info at geneethics.org or on Facebook of course Geneethics um, Facebook or our website No worries. Everyone's well, welcome Beautiful. We've run out of time. Thank you very much Bob Phelps. Great talking to you Scotty. We'll see you later